Now I hear the lonesome whistle of a quail As I ride along Along the tumbleweed trail Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more attention, that just need a little more love. My movie today, oh boy, is this a fun one. We are pulling out a movie here that is near and dear to my heart. This is a movie that I grew up with. In fact, I could make the argument this is the movie I have seen more times than any other movie in my life, which is astounding when you realize maybe there's four people on earth who know this movie. <laughs> and as luck would have it, I happen to have one of them as my guest today who also grew up on this movie. I'm so excited that we have the pairing here. Um, the movie I'm talking about is Rustler's Rhapsody, a very, very obscure yet witty Western comedy from 1985. Again, just a movie that I I have such such fond memories of just because I've seen it so many times over my lifetime. And my guest here today, again, I, I could not be more excited about this because this is a guy I've podcasted with before. If you know my other show, Survivor Historians, you know he is the only historian going all the way back to the first episode. We're the two that have been there since the beginning. And he's also the only one of the four of us who has the, the voice of an adult grown-up male. So I'm very excited to bring him on the show. Welcome, Jay Fisher. Hey, how you doing today? And uh, you know that the the fact that I have a, a a grown up voice that sounds like an adult male that's just you know that's that's you know obvious and 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 uh, and, and overt heterosexuality. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a a lot of discussion on heterosexuality and confident heterosexuality on this podcast. Got to be confident. Yeah, but before to, before we get into that, uh, Jay, why don't you tell people what you do, um, what you're known for, and really, how did you get involved with this movie? Because I'm fascinated to know how you discovered this one. Well, it's it's funny. When you were talking about it uh, just now, I, I didn't necessarily grow up with the movie um, because uh, I was born early 80s, so you know I wasn't aware of it in 1985 or, or when it came out. But um, anyway, uh, I'm Jay Fisher. Uh, I do podcasts regularly or whenever we do them with Mario Lanza here uh, in the Survivor community called Survivor Historians, where we look over uh, previous seasons from Survivor. We've done quite a bit of them now. And uh, so so podcasting wise, that's that's there. Uh, I also do a podcast with a couple friends of mine uh, about Game of Thrones um, called Demon Monkey Podcast. You can check that out as well. So there's just a couple things you can do there. Uh, I work in the education field, and I also do a lot of performance art, uh, most uh, most commonly uh, theater, uh, uh, doing plays and musicals and things like that. And I direct them for the high school level, and I do them myself. So, so cinema, acting, performing arts, that's something that I'm very into. And I got into that at sort of a young age when I started uh, getting into my teens, uh, it was something that I was I was very aware of. And one of my favorite movies growing up, and for some reason, I don't know why, but it was, was the movie Major League. <laughs> yes. Gotta love Major League, right? I mean, I, I don't know. My parents are not conservative by any stretch of the imagination, but they also were, uh, you know, wanted me to, to watch things that were appropriate. And somehow Major League slipped through the cracks, <laughs> and it was just this movie that I, I watched. And... You know, one of the stars of Major League, uh, Jake Taylor, the catcher, is played by Tom Berenger. 
And then in 1994, so I was about 13 years old, I saw the movie Gettysburg um, about the Battle of Gettysburg, which is in retrospect a terrible movie. But uh, it, it sort of sparked my interest in the history and, and history is the degree I have in college. And it all sort of stems from that movie. And uh, Tom Berenger is uh, one of the leads in that movie as well. He plays uh, James Longstreet. So, like, Tom Berenger becomes this person, you know, in the mid-90s where I'm like, I I seem to like his work. So I started, like, watching Tom Berenger movies, you know, Platoon and things like that. And uh, Rustler's Rhapsody is just this movie that was on his list. So I said, oh, okay, I need to find this movie. And it was sort of hard to find, but I remember tracking it down finding it watching it and just loving it for for what it is and it it, it was just one of those movies like you said mario where i I, nobody knew what this movie was and 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 then growing up and then and then meeting you and becoming friends with you you mentioned rustler's rhapsody one day i just said oh my god i can't believe somebody else knows that movie (laughs) yeah it's amazing that you and i arrived at the same movie in different ways and like i I've said this in other podcasts before. I have these movies that are very difficult to find, just kind of obscure, and it's hard to find co-hosts for a lot of them. You, I think, came to me for Rustler's Rhapsody before I even mentioned it, and it's like it just like I'm just giddy over this one. Like I actually have someone who knows this movie and loves it as much as I do, and we already do a podcast together, so we already know our dynamic. So like this this one has the potential to be a fantastic episode, Jay. And you know it, it's funny because you know as well, I thought that there were two movies that uh, like no one had ever seen, and I tried to describe Rustler's Rhapsody to people, but like. This one, it's 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 a PG sort of affair. Like it's all fine and everything like that. The other movie that, uh, and I know that this is a, a different podcast for a different time and and all those other other things with other people. But uh, you know, th- there was a movie that I watched uh, somehow late at night on some sort of TV that I didn't uh, that I I was trying to describe to my friends, and it was The Last American Virgin. Ah. And yeah, and and, and so like I, it was one of those again one of those movies where I was trying to describe this to friends, and they were like, "Oh my god, that sounds so weird! I can't believe I've never seen it." And I'm like, "I don't know, I've seen it. It's amazing." And then you know, getting to know you, you were like, "Oh, Rustler's Rhapsody! Oh my god!" And then you talk about The Last American Virgin. And I'm like, "I can't believe that you know that one too." <laughs> yeah, Jay is completely backing up my street cred here. I'm very excited about this because I should point out, Last American Virgin is scheduled for two weeks. That episode is right around the corner. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to listen to that one. God, what a movie. But I'm excited to do Rustler's Rhapsody because it's uh, – I don't know. There's so many things to say about it, and 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 I know that we're going to get into it and all that all that jazz, but it, it's just a – it's just a – it's something that I think everyone needs to, like, see and digest is really more than anything else, and that's sort of what I'm going to lead with. It's, it's, one of those, it's one of those movies where maybe it's not – it doesn't work on a movie level, but just on a on a thought process level, it works so well. Yeah, and that's something Jay and I had discussed before this podcast. We both kind of were talking about what we were going to bring up in this episode, and I think we both used the same phrase, was that it's about 10 or 15 years ahead of its time, really? Yeah, and, and, and it, not, not necessarily in the movie-making process, but mm-hmm. just the and, and not even necessarily the storyline, but just the jokes, how they go about the jokes, and sort of just the overall subject matter and what the subject matter is really containing or about is way ahead of its time. I, I want to give my history here because mine's a little different than yours is that yeah. I'm seven years older than you. I think something like that. And in the, uh, in the eighties, we, my brother and I watched every movie known to man. We just collected movies. We'd tape them on VHS with the explicit restriction being, we could not watch R rated movies, no R movies ever. 
So well, back, but back then they didn't even have PG-13, right? Correct, so. yeah, just PG. And this movie came around, and I remember this one specifically came out in 1985, and I remember they were advertising it on either HBO or Showtime, one of the pay channels at the time, and, and they said, this wonderful new Western comedy, and they showed a scene with uh, this bad guy accidentally getting shot in the back by his, his henchman, and that was how they always lead the commercial. And so my brother and I taped it, and it, I remember it was on a, a, the same VHS tape as Top Secret. We had those on back-to-back -back on a tape. <laughs> oh, what a tape. <laughs> yeah. So we watched that tape endlessly to the point that those are the two movies I've seen the most time in my lifetime. And this one in particular, Rustler's Rhapsody, always called out to me because it's so much more, and I, I was going to say intelligent. Intelligent is not the right word. It's just more conceptual than other comedies of its era. And that was the thing. I was so shocked because I assumed everyone knew this movie. Like my brother and I could quote this even to this day. And but I don't. I I was actually shocked when I found out this movie had a uh, a theatrical release. I thought it just went straight to the movie channels in the eighties, sure. and it was just this nothing movie. But it actually came out in eighty four or eighty five. It was a flop. It made no money. If you look at the reviews, the reviews just savage it. They have no idea or frame of reference what this movie should be compared to. And uh, we'll get into this, but they kind of compare it to Blazing Saddles a lot. But that's really not. It's it's closer to Airplane than it is to Blazing Saddles, really. That's a that's a good word that you used, and I didn't even think of it before. But conceptual, because that's sort of what it is. You know, when when you when I think when people be want to be movie makers or want to write movie scripts or or learn something about the movie genre itself, you know, they talk about framing a story and framing a narrative and doing camera shots and stuff like that. Wrestler's Rhapsody has none of that. Like it, it's not necessarily a movie put together it's this is not like a a film major or something putting together some avant-garde piece of art that makes you think about blah blah blah. you you know this was this was written by somebody who knows the western movie genre perhaps worked in the western movie genre and and just sort of thought of things within there and strung together a movie out of it and and what's nice about it though is that as you said it's conceptual but it's not conceptual as far as a movie piece but it's conceptual as far as the subject matter, how they approach it, what are they approaching, and what they deal with it. And I think I think that those are all the main things that, that you need to look at when you look at this movie. Yeah, the movie that I know, we're explaining this movie to people who have never seen it before. And again, I know people like uh, Dan Fields, who did my Bad News Bears podcast. He knows every 80s movie ever made. Even he was stunned when I mentioned Russell's Rhapsody. He's like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, I got to talk about this movie that nobody seems to know about but uh, conceptually, yeah, it's just it's just a string of ideas. It's making fun of the conventions of movies. It's making fun of movies within movies. And the movie that I want to compare it the most to for people who are listening to this is Last Action Hero, where yeah. people get sucked into a movie. They're dealing with movie conventions. They know they're there. And it's really a wink and a nod to all these little cliches and movies and people trying to work around them. That's what Wrestler's Rhapsody is, but it's kind of like an, in, in an airplane-y way with background gags and just very, very silly jokes. But some of them are very clever in the way they're just working around movie logic. And again, there was nothing like this at the time. And that's the one thing I want to get across to people is that this movie is just, again, there was no way for people in 1985 to appreciate this movie on the level that it should be appreciated on, I don't think. No, and, and and I think that that's an important point is that it's something where because the because of of time and marching forward and things like that, ideas that that this movie has 
has has happened since then. So somebody who looks at it with, you know, uh, 2018 eyes is going to say, well, yeah, this is nothing special and blah, blah, blah. But it's like back then this was uh, when you when you looked at it. And I think that, you know, this this is not not that I think that a lot of the movies necessarily will reference Rustler's Rhapsody as their influence. But this is the starting of a new sort of brand of thinking on on how to approach certain things. And, and Last Action Hero is a good example. If I can put it into performing arts a genre, there is a musical that came out uh, in the early 2000s by the name of Town, which uh, is one of my favorite mu- – it is actually my favorite musical of all time. And it, it's sort of like this, where it's a musical that is aware it is a musical and pokes fun lovingly at the musical genre while doing so. And it's, it's, it's that sort of meta-gags you know, talking about the thing that you're in and being aware that you're in one that that sort of is purveying in in Rustler's Rhapsody. And it's just it's such a Pandora's box for so many things that have come since then. Now, Jay, do you know who wrote Rustler's Rhapsody and who directed it? I'm just curious. Uh, I know who directed it. I don't know who wrote it. It's the same guy, Hugh Wilson. Oh, yeah. Oh, for, uh, the Police Academy guy. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say. It's the guy who made Police Academy, and I think he also created WKRP in Cincinnati, if I recall. But he was the brains behind this movie. And I so just... he's, he's an industry guy. He, he, he clearly has worked in the industry before then, so this is all coming from that. Oh, yeah, this is not a first-time script. This is clearly someone who knows the backdrop and background of movies, and that's why I wanted to bring that up. Are you a Police Academy fan? I'm just curious. Um, some, not all, but yes. I was just ca- talking I mean, about the first one, really, because that's really... Yeah, cool. okay, yes. I mean, we're all Steve Gutenberg fans to a degree, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, who who in this day and age does not have a Steve Gutenberg shrine somewhere in their house? Oh, God, the original Police Academy is a laugh riot. Are you kidding me? Okay, good. I'm just curious, because it's it's kind of shocking when you realize that movie and this movie come from the same place. Yes, because this one is... I think it's... I think it's... It's, it's headier, yet, but not... As you said, it's not intelligent, but it's headier, and it's clever in a lot of ways but i think that a lot of the jokes don't land quite as well as some of the madcap craziness of police academy so they're they're different movies but i can see that i can see the similarities between the two okay before we get into the plot of this movie and i know this is where we really want to dig into this to get you guys to appreciate this movie i have to say two things the first is that i'm so glad you brought up tom berenger because he is like one of my all-time favorite actors but I like Tom Berenger. He's the best. It's a revert. It's in a reverse order from you. And that I saw this movie first, and yeah. so all to this day, I still know him as Rex Herlihan, the singing cowboy, even when I see him <laughs> in other stuff. <laughs> right. So I saw yeah Major League. He I I've always thought even though Major League is I think the best baseball movie ever made, he's the backbone in it. He's one that holds it all together. And then in Gettysburg, which I'll agree to disagree about if that's a good movie or not. But I happen to love Gettysburg. But well, I love it. I love it. I love the subject matter, and some of the things are good. They use certain, like, stunt clips over and over again. Like, the movie is poorly assembled. You know what I mean? And it becomes very painful when you watch it again. But, yes, I love Gettysburg. Even to this day, I love it. Yeah, and my point there was that I love him in it especially, that James Longstreet is my favorite character in that movie. And to this day, when I read Civil War stuff, I always kind of focus on how Longstreet is, how he affects Gettysburg, just because I think Berenger was so strong in that role. 
I, I think so as well. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, so that's my Tom Berenger love. I've loved this guy for years. And the other thing I wanted to say is that um, people, when they read my writing, they read the Funny 115 or some of the stuff that I come up with, a lot of my jokes are, tend to be very conceptual. Like people that I like, Will Forte, Andy Kaufman, stuff like this, these aren't your typical comedians, but these are the guys that I hold near and dear to my heart. People always wonder where I got my sense of humor, but it makes a lot more sense when you realize the two things that were the most important to my life when I was a kid were Rustler's Rhapsody and Late Night with David Letterman in the mid-80s. Yeah, that makes, makes a lot of sense. If you understand that, you'll understand where I get my conceptual style of comedy. Because, again, there's very few kids that grew up like I did with this movie in particular forming their basis on what you think is funny. Yeah, and, and that's such a... That's such a blessing in a lot of ways that, you know, that this is something you latch onto because this is it's almost like a primer in in sort of how to think of it, not just what's funny and what's not funny, because there's a lot of jokes in this movie that frankly don't land super well. Mm -hmm. But the setup and just sort of how how the movie goes about itself is really just sort of a I don't even want to say a masterclass, but like a primer in how to think about framing jokes and how to sort of. Think about how you're going to tell a story. Uh, it, it's so difficult to explain, but it's like when you watch it and you look at it through those eyes, you can really see, I think, the craft behind or, or at least the, the in, insanely high level thought process that's going into this movie. Yeah. OK, so so we're going to dive into this movie and I'll just give people a quick overview of what it is. It's really it's, it's a Western comedy. It's a really a parody of the Western genre. Although I'm, I'm not sure if Jay would agree with this, but I don't think you need to know Western movies to really appreciate this movie. And I say that just because I've never really seen a classic Western from the 40s or 50s. Really? So I never have. I've had no interest in that. So I, I don't think it's necessary. You need to know them to get the jokes in this movie. Do you? No. Um, another movie that sort of I think it's not a parallel, but I think another uh, movie that's similar in the same thing, which is not a movie that needs more love because it gets plenty of love in real life is the princess bride <laughs> Yeah. in the sense that the princess bride is, it's not a parody, but it, it's, it, it is, it's a parody on that sort of um, swashbuckling dime novel, sort of a fantasy genre. And it's literally like the best fantasy genre dime novel movie that's ever been made. And it, it's literally just taking a lot of tropes from that thing and, and sort of making a movie out of it. And that's sort of what uh, uh, Rustler's Rhapsody is. So if you're not a fan of Westerns, you can still see this movie and appreciate it. Because I think Western movies, even if you haven't seen them, it's something that it's something that, that has pervaded uh, American culture, I think, pretty well. So you're sort of familiar with a lot of the tropes, even if you haven't seen a lot of Westerns. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. I think that's probably correct because I, again, I know the tropes they're making fun of, even though I've never seen the movies. And that's that's one thing I'm, I hope we're not scaring people off by saying this is a Western comedy. That that it really, again, I think it, it does a good enough job in explaining how the tropes got there to start with, and they just totally gleefully rip them apart. Right, and and if you are a fan of westerns and the western genre, first of all, who are you? Second of all. Um, you'll appreciate a lot of the things even better. I am not necessarily a fan of the Western genre. I don't. I don't want to claim to be so. I have seen some. I have seen a fistful of dollars with uh with Clint Eastwood and things like that. So I've seen some of the old Western ones. John Wayne ones. I'm not as uh, uh keen on. But what I like about this is it sort of pokes fun at all of those sort of Western movies. But it does so with a very broad sense and a wink. So you you know, if you don't 
necessarily know the Western genre, it, don't be scared off. It's, it's, it's very easy to jump into. And also, I, I think that Westerns is one of those movie genres that really just died. You know, mm-hmm. uh, horror movies and things like that have lived on in, in certain forms. And obviously, there's comedies and dramas and, and things like that. But Westerns just aren't made anymore. And I think that's another sort of weird relic. And I think that sort of explains when you were talking about the critics back then comparing it to Blazing Saddles because it's like first of all Blazing Saddles is a comedy that's a western but I think it was like literally the last western that was made <laughs> before Wrestler's Rhapsody like no one's making westerns anymore yeah I again even in the 80s this was kind of a dead yeah. genre so yeah this movie is it's anar- anachronistic it just does not exist in a place and time that that should have it should have existed and uh let's uh, okay before we dive into it too much the title. I gotta talk about the title of this movie. Maybe the worst title of a movie I have ever seen. It's not great. I know. So there's so many better ways they could have to describe this movie. I have no idea who came up with Rustlers Rhapsody. There's no rustlers in this movie. Nobody even knows what Rhapsody means, honestly. If I if I put you on the spot and tell me what Rhapsody means, I think even the great Jay Fisher may have a hard time with that word. Rhapsody? It has to do with with a song of some sort. Okay. Yeah, but again, it's a it's a weird title. Just just ignore the title. Just call this cowboy movie or not another cowboy movie or something. It just makes way more sense. I just you know the the the, the adventures of Rex O'Hurlihan. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I'll give a quick overview of this movie. Basically, it's a cowboy. He's wandering through the Wild West. And he's basically on a Mobius strip. This is his entire life. Every town he goes into, the exact same things happen. There's always the same stereotypical characters. It follows the same basic structure. And he's just, it's almost like he's trapped in hell. He just goes through his life and it's over and over the exact same thing. And right there you can already see there, there's not a movie like this that existed in the 80s prior to this where he knows he's in a movie, he knows the future, and he's just like bored. He's just going through life repeating the same thing over and over. And what this movie is, is the first time he goes to a town where something different happens for a change. Yeah, and, and let's go back to the very beginning of this movie. I mean, I'm, we're not going to go through this blow by blow, I know. But at the beginning of the movie, the movie starts out black and white for mm-hmm. literally like a minute. And, and it's it's sort of introduces Rex O'Hurlihan, the singing cowboy. So you see him like yeehaw sort of salute toward the camera. And there's there's a voiceover and the voiceover is talking about, yeah, it's Rex O'Hurlihan, the singing cowboy. He's, you know, one of the best, uh, you know, guns in the West and was a great, you know, movie sort of thing. And, and they talk about how like he was the most popular cowboy movie star from this era to this era. It's like from the 30s to the 40s and and, and whatnot. And then he says, you know, I wonder what he'd be if, you know, he was in a movie today and then the instantly the movie snaps to color. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's he's in the movie and you see him like chasing the bad guys and, and shooting his guns and stuff like that. And then it snips to color and says, I wonder what it's like this time. And then you see the bad guys realize they have more guys than Rex does. So they start chasing him. <laughs> so, you know, it's this sort of thing. And, and like you said, it's 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 not even just Mobius stripper in hell. It's one of those things where like be through this action of being warped into color and into sort of the modern times he's he's in a modern sort of western cowboy story i suppose but he's painfully aware that he is a character in western movies you know but but he does he's not necessarily saying it's a movie or something like that or like i'm in a movie but he's like this is what happens in 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 all of my adventures in in the sense that he's a drifter 
uh, a wanderer. He wanders into a town. He helps the good guys defeat the bad guys and then rides off into the sunset. Like, he's aware that this happens all the time. Yeah, he never does use the word movie. You're right. He just knows this is my world. This is what's going to happen. And the movie has a lot of fun right off the bat with just the stereotypes on what a good guy cowboy would be. And they just go completely over the top with it that Rex apparently travels from town to town. He's got a like a full-on dresser and wardrobe. <laughs> Right, because all of the other bad guys, like the bad guys at the beginning, and then the first bad guys we meet in the first saloon in our in our uh, in our town, um, you know, they're wearing sort of traditional Western garb, which is sort of nondescript uh, Western clothing with you know some black vests, you know, sort of the long the long sleeved uh, uh, sort of light cottony shirts or uh, shirts that are happening, and Rex comes in with like fringe comes in with with multiple patterns of things he's got like all of his clothes are clean and 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 immaculately pressed he's got like a flowing white uh like neckerchief scarf type thing (laughs) you know it's just it's garish compared to everyone else and there's just this great scene when he sort of stumbles into the saloon for the first time and everyone looks kind of grungy and dingy and, and very old Westy. And he's coming in just with the spotless immaculate white shirt with some rose pattern on it with his white thing. And he just, I mean, he looks so out of place, but that's the good guy cowboy. Right. And then they, they go further in this trope and I, it's just these great things at the beginning, which I think, I, I think all of this is just super loaded at the beginning where like he goes to the, to the bartender. And I mean, What's our good guy cowboy going to order from the bar? He looks and he says, I would like a glass of warm milk, <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. But then the bartender looks at him like, like, no way, dude, I'm not going to get you this warm milk. So then he changes his order to a sarsaparilla. And the, guy, the bartender just looks at him and then he finally just says, oh, this is one of those tough bars, isn't it? <laughs> and the bartender just shakes his head yes. And he says, well, in that case, I'll order a warm gin with a human hair in it. <laughs> yeah. Just this, this garishly dressed stranger walks into a bar, and then Jay is kind of even underselling Rex's outfit, how ridiculous it is. And and this will be a, a running gag through the whole movie, is that Rex has an entire wardrobe he travels with, and every day he must wear a new shirt. That's like the good guy rule. You can never be boring or repetitive. Like It's like he's at the frickin' Oscars. Right. <laughs> he, he, yeah, and that's the whole thing, is he comes and he's got his, he's got his horse wildfire, and... You know, first of all, his horse, when he rides into town, it's not he's just riding into town like Clint Eastwood on, on a horse, like drifting in. The horse is high-stepping, like a, like a trot canter, right? So it's already out of place. And so he's trotting down in his ridiculous outfit, and he goes into the saloon. And, and that's the other thing that they show you from time to time is that he's riding with this horse. And when he rides into town, he's got the horse, but he's got this, like the stagecoach almost. And the stagecoach is his wardrobe. Yeah. And he's got like 50 different variants of a white hat and he's got yes. an iron. He's got a whole washing board, like an ironing board and a washing set so he can do his laundry and he can do his ironing. It's just it's they don't um, beat you over the head with that either. It's kind of in the background. You kind of have to notice this when you the more times you watch this movie. It, it, it's good. And, you know, he, he, and, and what what's great is that then we get the saloon scene and the saloon scene sort of sort of. uh rides this out where he's looking around at all of the things and and basically uh his sidekick or what is the town drunk comes up and starts talking to him mm-hmm. and he's basically like hey man you buy me a drink i'll tell you all about this town and he says okay sure and the, he starts running down all the people he's just like well uh those are the sheep herders they're the good guys but they're super poor 
And uh, there's the sheriff. He's corrupt. He's in the pocket of a colonel because there's always a colonel who's who's a cattle rancher baron. Um, you know, and then he says, "Here's the here's the prostitute, but she doesn't actually sleep with the men, and she has a heart of gold." Like, it, it's all of these Western tropes that we all know about, and they're literally pointing it out all in this bar, in this saloon scene at the first time. And the thing is, is that not only is the drunk town drunk pointing all of this out to Rex. Rex knows he's finishing his sentences. Rex knows what all these people are because, as he says, he's been to a town like this before. Yeah, this is every town. This is some the discussion he gets in with the 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 uh, town drunk Peter, where Rex will say, "Yeah, I know, I know, I've been through this. is This is literally every town I've ever been in in the Old West." And Peter will be like, "Well, you know, every town doesn't have." And like you said, Rex will be finishing his sentence. He's like, "You mean the railroad coming through town? That's unique here." And Rex is like, that's every town. Every town has the railroad, Peter. So, again, right off the bat, we're getting into these tropes that Rex knows everything that's going on because he's lived this life before. This is literally every single small town he has ever stopped in. Uh, he says this is uh, after the saloon scene. We'll go back to it. But, you know, again, it's this conversation with, with Peter, the town drunk, where he says, you know, I, every town is like this. And Peter says, no, they don't have this, the railroad coming through. And then he finally says, do you have a new school marm who's pretty but asexual? <laughs> Yeah, that's the line that even as a kid that made me laugh. It comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and then Peter's like, yeah. He's like, do you have a blacksmith who's a big guy who only gets mad occasionally when someone uh, you know, insults him? Yeah. Do you have a newspaper man who's a, who's a young idealist who hawked everything for his printing press? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just all of these sort of things. And not only is it every town, but Peter's like, yeah, we have all of those things. And Rex says, I know. I know. And Peter's like, damn. Like, we are the same. <laughs> okay, so Rex is me is getting his introduction to the town, and he's learning all these people that he already knows because they're just paper-thin caricatures of every other town he's ever been in. And now we meet the bad guy in the town. There's a uh, He's like the villain, this guy named Blackie. Blackie comes into the saloon, and he starts throwing his weight around, and he's bullying the poor sheep herders, and again... You've seen this in movies before. There, you know the the good guy's gonna stand up for the for the the poor people, and he's gonna uh, fight off Blackie. And that's what Rex does when uh, this guy Blackie starts mouthing off to the local prostitute. Rex says, "Hey, that'll be enough of that." And Blackie looks over at Rex. He sees this fancy dressing stranger lipping off to him. And Blackie, of course, nobody lips off to him. He's the toughest guy in town. And Blackie's like, "What in the hell are you?" And Rex is like, "Well, I'm just a stranger passing through town." And Blackie's like, where in the hell did you get that shirt? And here's the line, as again, as a 10-year-old, that really just kills me. Rex, this is retort to the town bully is, how a person dresses is nobody's business but his or her own. And you see all the bar clear behind Rex as they all know, uh-oh, gunfight coming. That's what I love. Is he says that, you know, how a person dresses this is no concern to anyone. And, and, and the, then they're like, oh, now he's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And then Blackie, of course, follows this up with the ultimate insult in the in the Old West, where he says, you know what you look like, fella? You look like one of them fellers who's attracted to other men. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, um, gunfight is about to ensue between the bully and our hero, Rex O'Herlihan. And what's great is that Rex looks at him and says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to shoot you in the hand. It's such a fantastic line, and it's such a trope. And they don't fully – what I love about this movie is they don't explain it. They never fully explain it, but it's there because 
you know, the good guy is not going to shoot people dead. Like, even though we, we accept that now is that, you know, hey, there's gunfights and people shoot. He's a good guy. So he's not necessarily out to kill people, but he's going to shoot them in the hand because that will disarm them. And then no one's going to get shot and then he can apprehend them or whatever. And so that's the whole thing is that like he tells uh, this this villain Blackie he says, I'm going to shoot you in the hand. And he's like, not in the chest or the face. Nope. Just the hand. <laughs> I don't reckon I like the idea of getting shot in the hand. <laughs> yeah, it's like it bothers the villain that he's not going to get killed. He's just going to get shot in the hand. And this will be a running gag throughout this entire movie that Rex cannot kill people. All he can do is shoot their guns out of their hand. And so, yeah, they're getting a little discussion here over being killed is worse than being shot in the hand. And Blackie doesn't like that idea. And Rex is like, well, if you don't like being shot in the hand, then go home. And Blackie's like, go home? And Rex is like, yeah, just get out of here and go home. And Blackie's like, go home? And Rex is like, yeah, and see someone about your hearing. Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah, so anyway, the they they draw guns, and Rex, of course, he not only can he not kill people, he cannot draw first. The other person must draw first. So Blackie draws, Rex shoots the gun out of his hand, and of course you see the gun go flying back, and Blackie's like, Ugh, you shot me in the hand, and he's got some henchmen behind him. And like I said... At the start, this is the scene they would always hype on Showtime in the commercials. Blackie's like, get him, men! And the two men behind him pull out their guns and shoot, but they, instead of shooting Rex, they accidentally shoot Blackie in the back. <laughs> so they take out their, their leader, and they're like, oh, crap, now we've done it. And I, this is very solid, and uh, I, I understand maybe some of the criticisms, because there's a lot of this movie that doesn't necessarily work, but I think that this whole opening, the zip into color... And this whole opening saloon scene with Rex and the draw and the and the and the town drunk explaining the exposition of this and the 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 gunfight with Blackie. This is all just this is all fantastic. This is like a good ten minute sequence or fifteen minute sequence, however long it is. This is just I, I think this is cinema at its finest. This is just a really, really good scene. It's funny, all of the jokes land. And it is it's super again, it's meta in the sense that they're aware that they're doing this Western and they're talking about being in a Western, but not telling you they're in a movie or in a Western. Yeah. And I love that the sidekicks right here, just to kind of a throwaway line. They're like, believe me, mister, you ain't heard the end of this. And Rex is like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Trust me. I know there's more movie. This is how the movie starts. Trust me. I know there will be more. So that, and we're just going to go into it from there. So we go outside, and there's a, a wonderful visual joke that I'd actually never caught as a kid. I just kind of caught it the other day when I was watching where Rex goes outside, and he whistles for his horse. And as he's whistling, there's a background gag of the bad guys trying to load Blackie's corpse onto a horse. And, like, they're struggling to get this dead guy on a, on a horse. It's, again, just a background joke. But then Wildfire, Rex's horse, comes running, and he's still got part of the hitching poach, post uh, tethered to his, his, uh, his mouth. Like, it's kind of the old trope. You whistle for the horse and the horse comes running. Well, we saw earlier in the movie that Rex had tied his his horse to the hitching post. So when he calls and the horse runs over, he literally rips the hitching post off and brings it with him, which is just a neat little visual gag I always appreciated. Right, and it's set up uh, very briefly. When we had the snap from black and white to color at the beginning, one of the throwaway lines that, you know, I, I thought about it for a long time on, on a rewatch of this movie. It's not something I've always thought about, but something I thought about this time, especially thinking about the meta-ness of the movie, is the idea that, you know, he says, what would it be like if Rex were in a movie today? So, you know, he says, well, the bad guys wouldn't be so cowardly. And then one of the things he says is he says, Rex wouldn't be so perfect. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that this is just one of those things where, you know, maybe back in the black and white version of Rex O'Hurlihan, the singing cowboy, when he whistles for wildfire, uh, the horse would just come and not have a bit of the hitching post. Like it would just magically have untethered himself and would present himself to Rex. But we're in the real world now for some reason. And, and, and so obviously the horse has to get itself free from the hitching post. So part of the hitching post goes with it. <laughs> okay. We're about to meet who I think is the funniest character in this movie. And I'm sure Jay will back me up here. We're about to meet the main, the uh, villain in this movie, the Colonel, uh, Colonel Ticonderoga played by in a bit of inspired casting. They decided that Andy Griffith of all people would make the greatest evil cattle baron. Yeah. And, and they also set up, you know, another amazing trope where they talk about, you know, they they said earlier in the saloon scene, it's always got to be an evil baron, and it's always got to be a colonel. And then they talk about how, you know, we we need to pan in on the on the baron's cattle ranch where you can hear ten thousand cows, but you never really see them. Yeah, and they point that out. And they point that out, like that's a thing they point out. And then you just see this like exterior shot of a ranch, and you just hear like scores of cows mooing, but you never see a cow. This movie, you never see a single cow. <laughs> So we go inside, and Blackie, the villain, has been killed, and they've decided to bring him back to the boss's house, the, the colonel's house, and Andy Griffith's there. And for some reason in this movie, Andy Griffith plays this gay, evil, mincing baron, which is an odd character choice. And again, it's not the type of, of a, uh, a role you would see out of, you know, Mr. Prim and Proper, beloved Andy Griffith. And in Arrested Development terms, I should point out... No one was making fun of Andy Griffith. But yeah, it's an, it's an odd choice that, to see him in this role. And I remember as a kid just thinking this was so funny to see Andy Griffith, of all people, as this character. And I love that they have that. I mean, it, it, it's so weird in the sense that, you know, they, they zoom into the colonel's house and then they see him, you know, the, the, the henchman that shot Blackie and Blackie dead on the couch. And what I love is that they just lampshade it, like right there. Like Andy Griffith is just like, okay, it, it's a shame that, that Blackie was killed. He was one of my best men, but... Why did you bring the body here? Why did you put him on my couch? By God, people live in this house. What are you doing? <laughs> and they're like, well, what were we supposed to do with him? And he's like, you bury him. He's dead. You bury the <laughs> And I just love that sort of scene because that's a thing you would see in movies, right? Is that, you know, they would talk about the dead person and they have the dead person right there. And Andy Griffith's just like, why'd you bring a dead person into my house? Yeah, and Andy, he's got this catchphrase. He's always like, gee whiz. Yeah, his little angry catchphrase. And then he goes on a little spiel here about Blackie was so mean and, and he was so, he always yelling at people and killing people. But, but I knew the real Blackie. Like, he was a man who could feel. He was a man who could touch. And it's like been implied that the Colonel has maybe had relations with Blackie at some point. And it's, you think it's just one of these silly, they do, you know, lots of gay jokes in the 80s, which, you know, that they wouldn't do that now. But there's actually a point to this one, because two seconds later, his daughter, the colonel's daughter, played by a very young Celia Ward. Oh, she looks so young in this movie. Yeah, she looks like she's about 18. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so Celia Ward comes down and says, they killed Blackie? Oh, my God. She's like, Daddy, we did everything together. We could, he could feel, he could touch. And Andy Griffith's like, oh, my God. <laughs> The implication that the colonel and his daughter have both been with the same henchman. Yeah, it it is nice that in the in the years since 1985 we've uh, thought differently on on you know LGBTQ characters and stuff like that. But I think that the the joke here that Andy Griffith and his daughter have have both you know dated the same man I think is a funny sort of 
uh, thing in that scene. It, it, it's a, it's, it's a funny scene there. All right, so the colonel says, well, this man, this Rex O'Herlihan, he's a coward. He killed this man Blackie. He shot him in the back. And the hench- henchmen are like, well, yeah, and, and he got all the people in the bar to say that we done it. Like, he's a coward. <laughs> so, so the colonel lays down the edict. Go out to his campsite and kill him. Murder him. Rip his guts out. And again, this is Andy Griffith of Mayberry saying this. And so we're going to cut to Rex's camp out in, uh, out in the woods. He always camps right outside town. And he, we see a, a typical day in the life of Rex O'Herlihan of him setting up little hand targets. One of the nice little things that I appreciate about this movie, where he practices shooting guns out of a hand by having these little targets on the ground that are shaped like hands. Yes. This is, yeah, he sets up, like, he's, he's literally, like, driving them into the ground like a stake, and they're literally just hands with pistols in them. So, like, his target practice is shooting hands. Yeah, okay, and here comes the big ambush scene. And again, Rex knows everything in this movie is going to happen because this is literally his life. He always shows up in town, he kills a henchman, they come and ambush him at his ambush him at his camp, so he knows they're coming. So he's laying in wait, just waiting for the henchman to show up. And this is where we get one of the absolutely fantastic conceptual jokes in this movie, the circle scene. I will I will let you describe this one, Jay, because this is this is a fun one. Well, first of all, in 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 a sense, and this is the whole thing, you know, Rex O'Herlihan, the singing cowboy, the 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 good guy cowboy, is in. He's well dressed. He goes into a bar and orders warm milk and stuff like that. So at night, when when the ambush is happening, what is Rex O'Herlihan doing in his camp? He's writing a letter to his mother. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, <laughs> he's dictating a letter to his mom. <laughs> and he's like, "Mom, I'm well. Please send funds for." supplies which you're like oh you need more hats or something like that so then the ambush people come so rex of course meets them off at the pass and they're basically having a talk down you know like ah oh, we're we're here to get you and rex is like i know i know you are i know how this goes and stuff like that and they sort of sidle into place and what you see is because there's there's five henchmen and one of them is talking but the other ones sort of slowly fan out and they're all sort of trying to surround rex and they all draw their guns. And Rex basically then stops and looks at them all and says, you gave yourself away, you know. And they said, why? And he says, because of the positioning. Although you don't know that once the shooting starts, you're more likely to hit each other than you are me. <laughs> you you fellas are making a big mistake. Oh, yeah, how's that? And he literally explains the physics of how a circle will work, and they're more likely to kill each other. <laughs> so all the bad, the bad guys there, they kind of sidle their eyes to the side to look at each other, and they slowly fan back, back into their original position. And again, not a scene you would have seen in many comedies of that era. Right, and, and, and the, 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 the comedy of it is the fact that they just, they naturally go in that position, and then Rex doesn't even do anything about it. He just says, you guys realize that you're doing this thing and you're going to hurt each other, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is totally a thing that happens in Western movies, I assume. And so then they, they slowly look at him, and then they go back sort of into the line in front of Rex, and then he proceeds, you know, you see him, you see them draw, then you see Rex draw, and then you see the scene where they're riding back to the cattle ranch, where you can hear moving cows, but you can't see them. And they all have their right arms up in the air because Rex has shot their hands. <laughs> yeah, just one of the great visual jokes in this movie. Every time bad guys are defeated, you just see them riding off with their hands up in the air in pain because they've been shot. <laughs> Although there's a line here that I, I we skipped over where, where Rex is always forever just saying something literally, just literally explaining what happened in a scene where after he explained the circle theory to the bad guys, the main guy's like, you think you're real smart, don't you, fella? And Rex is like, well, you know, when I see something that's obviously wrong, I try to speak up. 
Yeah. <laughs> just so deadpan. Because he's a good guy, you know? He, you need to speak up for what's wrong. Um, you know, and, and, and also, here's another thing that, 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 again, they don't explain, and I don't think is necessarily a Western trope, but something unique to this movie. Um, before all these scenes, like, sort of in the, we get these cutaways to just a day in the life of Rex O'Hurlihan. And by this point, Rex has, like, had a song, like a full-on song where he's, you know, pulled out his guitar and sung some sort of thing. And as he's done it, you saw him, he's literally eating what looks like a root, like a potato or something like that. And that's the whole thing is where, like, he then says, root's kicking in. And there's this whole thing where, like, what is the root? It's like his nourishment, but is it also a drug? Like, I don't know. This is going to come into play later. But, yes, they, they, the, the, the henchmen have now go back to Andy Griffith where they then need to explain that, you know, Andy Griffith's like, did you kill him? They're like, not exactly. And he's like, well, what happened? He shot us in the hand. Yeah. <laughs> Andy's like, well, we'll go out there and we'll crack, we'll bring more men and we'll crush him. And the guys are like, again, just a very uh, underplayed scene. The guys are like, well, you know, it's kind of a weekend or a weeknight and we don't want to go out there. Plus, we got to go to the hospital for our hands again. And that takes a while. Just little stuff you wouldn't think about in a movie. And, and this is the first time this is a recurring thing that happens several times in the movie where the henchmen have excuses, but they're not necessarily excuses. They're explaining why they can't do something. And they're actually sort of legitimate reasons and things you don't you don't think about. Like in this scene, Andy, you know, Andy Griffith's like or Colonel Ticonderoga, I guess we keep calling him Andy Griffith. But let's face it, it's Andy Griffith. And, you know, they you know, he says, hey, let's just get more men and go go ambush them. And they're like, well, it's I mean, we've already been out there. It's it's pretty late. We need to do things. Also, we've been shot in the hand. We need to get that patched up. You know, and you see Andy Griffith kind of like shrug like, yeah, I guess you do. And then they suggest to go to the railroad men, and Andy Griffith's like, I don't know about the railroad men, but, well, I guess we'll we'll figure it out. And then there's this background joke sort of at the end. Andy Griffith's daughter, the very young Seal Award, although I don't – she's probably like, what, late 20s, early probably, 30s at yeah, this point? Yeah. But she look, yeah, she doesn't look like the Seal Award that we know that's you know in her prime, I guess. This, this is well <laughs> before Seal Award's prime. And uh, – you know, she's like, I want to ride Wildfire, which is a different horse named Wildfire, where it's whatever. And then sort of at the end of the scene, when the when the henchmen are leaving and the scene sort of revolving, resolving itself, you see Wildfire, the horse run by and it's dragging Seela Ward behind him. <laughs> yeah, it's that she doesn't do much in this movie other than get dragged behind a horse. That's really her entire point in this movie. I remembered when I when I saw it all these times ago because it's been years since I've seen Wrestler's Rhapsody, but I sort of remembered her having a bigger part and mm-hmm. like she really doesn't like she's only in a handful of scenes. Yeah, there's there's two female leads in this movie. We kind of glossed over the first one, Miss Tracy. She's the prostitute who doesn't actually sleep with anyone. She's the stereotypical hooker with the heart of gold, and she's played by Marilu Henner. She's the other female lead in this. And I was actually reading a great description of this the other day. Someone said. Man, Marilu Henner was hot in this movie. He said, um, what was the exact sentence? He said, if I ran a stalker website of Marilu Henner, I believe I'd have a lot of pictures from Rustler's Rhapsody on it. Marilu Henner is a talent, and she does well in this movie. But this movie is very deceiving. It doesn't have a ton of characters in it, mm-hmm. and not a lot of people have a ton to do. Like, this movie is pretty much all Rex O'Hurlihan. Yeah. With a little bit of Peter the Town Drunk or, or Rex's sidekick, and then Andy Griffith as Colonel Ticonderoga. But like, 
everybody else is very ancillary. Like even Mary Lou Henner and Celia Ward, like they're only in a handful of scenes. Yeah. Although let's talk about Peter the drunk for a second here. We didn't mention this. Um, a lot of people may know the guy he's going to be the number two character in this movie, Peter. He's going to later become Rex's sidekick. He is played by veteran character actor G.W. Bailey, who most yes. people would know from Police Academy, where he plays uh, Lieutenant Harris, the, the dick sergeant or lieutenant. But he's also in Mannequin, where he plays the uh, security guard. And this is the only movie I've ever seen where he's like a hero, where he's like a, a sympathetic good guy. It's weird. Yeah, but, you know, he's he's and, and but again, he's the sidekick, but he's he's again the town drunk. He's this dirty kind of individual and like even in the scene you know this is i don't think this is something we're going to like talk about a ton but you know he becomes rex's sidekick as the movie goes along and one of the scenes you see is you see rex riding on wildfire and he's cantering trotting high stepping and then you see peter his sidekick come up and he's riding the typical sort of donkey (laughs) sidekick steed that you know the the lowly sidekick of, of of a of a great cowboy sort of would be Okay, let's let's jump ahead to the movie here. We got a lot to get into here. Where uh, what happens is uh, Andy Griffith. I'm just gonna keep calling him Andy because I got I have no other frame of reference for him. Is that he decides we're gonna call in the railroad men, like Jay said, and the railroad men are <laughs> again where the the movie is already fairly meta, and it's gonna jump to a whole new level of meta here, where the railroad men are all spaghetti western characters. So you have these old stereotypical western characters from the 30s and 40s they're all the bad guys now they're going to call in the spaghetti western people and we literally have a scene where like characters from the 60s meet up with characters from the 30s and they all like all the spaghetti western people are played by italians they all have accents and dusters it's just this great meeting of the minds that the two forces team up against rex right and 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 to expound on the spaghetti western thing like the voiceover which is Peter, the voice, he is the voiceover of, of this movie. You know, he talks about how he meets up with the, the railroad men and they're of the spaghetti western type. He even says so. And he talks about how, you know, they have great background music because spaghetti westerns had good background music, which again, background music then starts to play. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about how, you know, they dress a little differently. They wore those nice raincoats, even when it's 110 in the shade, because everybody in a spaghetti western wears those dusters and everything like that. And it, it is this great scene where, they're they're on the train and they're conspiring to work with each other to take down Rex O'Hurlihan, the singing cowboy. And, you know, again, the, it's the whole thing with the bumbling villains where they're like, we can't let him know of our plan. And, of course, Rex is on the roof listening to the plan and he jumps down on the horse. And there's a great scene where, you know, they stop the train and they all file out and you see these villains and some of the stereotypical Western villains in their Western garb. And you see all of the spaghetti Western men in their dusters. And it's just this nice sort of collection of all of these decades and genres of western villains out there to try to to try to nab rex yeah and i i didn't i kind of forgot how literal this movie is like we talked about the men having to go to the hospital just the little background details that how this movie would play out in real life is what happens in the movie here where you know all these bad guys are on a train and rex is out there on a horse and the colonel's like get on your horses man go after him and they're like we don't have our horses we're on a train and he's like, where are the horses? And one of the men's like, what were we going to do? Buy them tickets? How how were they going to get on the train? 
<laughs> and then there's a scene here where the bad guys pull out these rifles and they try to shoot at Rex and they all miss. They have these telescopic rifles and they all take a shot and they miss. And the colonel's like, how could you miss? You men are pathetic. And one of the guys turns around and just has this fantastic little monologue. And again, for aspiring young stage actors, this would be a good uh, monologue to read. When one of the guys tells the colonel, well, you know, even with these sights, we got a target that's 100 yards away, maybe more. We've never fired these weapons before. There's a definite win factor, and we've got a problem with the sun. <laughs> and Andy's like, just shoot, okay? <laughs> just shoot, okay? And, and that's the whole thing. Is that it, it's, it's, again, this whole thing where the henchmen have legitimate reasons for why they're not doing something. And, and I think that, you know, ter- Colonel Tycon or Andy Griffith, ter- Colonel Ticonderoga, no, you know, will begrudgingly accept this. You know, he says, just shoot, okay? But he, he realizes that, you know, they can't. But I mean, it's, it's the whole hilarity of the villains have telescopic rifles and are trying to shoot at Rex, and he's literally on his horse waving at them. And then he pulls out one of his sidearm pistols, sort of hip shoots. Like, he doesn't even aim, he, like, hip shoots. And of course, he hits the rifles out of their hands in succession yeah <laughs> again and they the bad guys all know now they've joined forces the spaghetti western and the regular cowboys and they're all like this is not going to be easy and this is where uh <laughs> again we're gonna where, where they're gonna go with this is one of maybe my favorite jokes in any 80s movie just how conceptually brilliant it is it's we're coming up there in a minute but first there's a big long extended scene here where everybody is fascinated by rex now because rex keeps standing up to these bad guys and he keeps winning and they've never seen someone like him before so Celia Ward, the colonel's daughter, is going to be dragged out to Rex's camp. He's just going to stumble onto her and rescue her. While he's there, the town prostitute, Miss Tracy, is going to come out, and she wants to score with him and hit on him. And Peter, the town drunk, comes out there. He wants to be Rex's sidekick. And then the uh, the sheep herders, these poor villagers in the town who are being you know, fleeced and harassed by the colonel, they come out too, and they're asking for his help to stand up for their rights. So everybody's going to converge on poor Rex's campsite in a one of the longer, funnier scenes in the movie, I would say. Yeah, and, you know, this, this is sort of just classic comedy at its best, where, you know, uh, Rex is out there by himself. Well, no, he's not out there by himself because, you know, he rescues Celia Ward, the colonel's daughter, and, you know, she's been dragged. So he, of course... With with the whole like in joke for the fact that you know he's got this whole wardrobe and it's spotlessly clean like she's not naked but she's wearing sort of like a a long coat that that Rex has because he's washed her clothes yeah and the, he's got a much dress she's like thanks for washing my clothes and he says he has some throwaway line where he's just like yeah I've I've never really had a, a problem with ground and dirt stains it's it's blood and chocolate that you know <laughs> are the worst you know so he's talking about like literally laundry tips here and she's just kind of like okay that's nice. And so she's sort of talking to him and she's she's kind of sort of wearing this long coat and nothing much else. But again, I she's actually wearing like like underwear, like petticoat bloomers. You don't see it, but you see it a little bit later. So it's not that salacious. But, you know, she's talking to Rex over the fire and then he hears someone coming. So then he's like, "Uh, I'm supposed to be out here by myself. Could you just hide while I take care of this? And she's like, "Okay, I guess. So then he tucks her away and then Miss Tracy comes and she's, you know, wearing this long coat herself and then. You know, she invites herself in and Rex is like, "Okay, I guess I can have a drink with you. And then she takes off her coat and she's wearing something slightly revealing because, of course, she wants to score with him. And he's like, gulp. And then, you know, uh, Celia Ward's coming back. So then he makes the prostitute hide. And she's like, I heard someone's voice. And he's like, no, no, you didn't. It was me. And then 
He makes her hide because then Peter comes up and he wants to be a sidekick. And Rex is like, no, I just need to be alone. I'm a, I, I work alone. And then, of course, the two girls come and Peter's like, you're not alone. You're like the least alone man I've ever seen. So, like, there's two women in various states of, of, of dress and you've got Peter there. And then the sheep herders come up and it's just this whole – it's that whole comedy of – you know, Rex trying to maintain this facade of I'm here by myself and then people keep showing up and he keeps trying to hide them from each other. Yeah, and it's like a stage play, kind of like noises off here with everyone just kind of coming in and out of the scene and it's chaos. Although there's a functional part of this scene that comes up later in the movie where we learn that, you know, Rex is the perfect human being. He's a good guy. He wears white. He talks to children. He's a role model. He sticks up for the poor. He drinks milk. There's a uh, even a running joke that he can even start a fire better than a normal person. He just throws a match into a pit and a blazing fire starts up every time. So Rex is like the perfect human being, but he is not confident with women. And that's the one thing that jumps out in this scene when you know where this movie is going, is that Rex has a flaw. He is not good with women. He's very flustered when Celia Ward is out there. When Miss Tracy takes off her clothes, he's all flustered. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really... He's so wrapped up in the idea of being a good guy, he doesn't want to pursue the women. He cannot take advantage of anybody. And at one point, I think he even phrases it where Celia Ward says, why do you want me to go hide in the trees? And he's like, well, look at you. You're a nice girl in your underwear, and I'm I'm the good guy. Like, we can't do this. This isn't how it works. So it's a, a comedic scene, but it has a point later in the in the movie where we find out that Rex may not be so confident in his heterosexuality. Yeah. But but I, I think we, we get to we get to something there later. And then of course the, the sheep herders, good guys show up and they're like, you know, oh, we're getting squeezed out, you know, and Rex says, I know. I know you are. Yeah, he's like, I wasn't expecting you until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting you until tomorrow because he knows that the that the that the good guys are gonna seek him out for help. The the way this scene ends, basically everyone's begging for help and and Peter is begging to be Rex's sidekick, and Rex is like, no, I cannot have a sidekick. He, he doesn't spell it out. We find out later what happens is the sidekick always dies. So Rex has learned 20 or 40 or 50 or 100 towns ago, stop having sidekicks. They will always get killed because that's what happens in movies. And eventually all these people are just bar are baiting him and just badgering him, saying, let Peter be your sidekick. Look, then instead of one against 100 men, it'll be two. Now you have someone to help. And Rex is like, fine, just to shut everybody up. I'll take the town drunk on as my sidekick. And this is where it leads to the scene you talked about earlier, the sidekick lessons. Yes, the sidekick lessons, which, uh, you know, again, sort of sort of comedic things that happen in sequence. One of them is Rex is, you know, showing him that he's got to leap from from a tall place like a barn or a ledge and jump onto the horse, you know, that, that you see in Western movies where like they kind of jump down onto the saddle from like 10, 15 feet in the air. And of course, it's the whole he jumps down and of course he's hurt his crotch because you know it, it was a it was a long fall onto the saddle and he speaks with a high voice and then you know he's got the shooting lessons where Rex Rex puts the cigarette in his mouth and Peter's got to shoot the cigarette but of course it shoots the hat off his head but then it sort of slowly pans into the fact that one of the sidekick lessons is he has to do Rex's laundry <laughs> so he's washing clothes and then he teaches him how to iron shirts because everything Rex has has to be neatly pressed yeah, and Peter even figures out the trick on throwing a match into the fire pit and letting the fire flame up all in one shot. So he's becoming a pretty good sidekick, although I think we find out later this took place over one day. <laughs> yeah. And they write a song together. That's eventually the big bonding moment that Rex O'Herlihan, again, the singing cowboy, we're kind of glossing over all the songs he sings in this movie, and 
Behringer, I think he may, I'm not sure if he sings the songs himself, but they're all pretty catchy. But he's got a theme song, I Ride Alone. That's why he can't have a sidekick. But he and Peter ride a song together, I'll Get By. And so, like, it, it may become a twosome here. He actually may end up with a sidekick. And again, all Rex's plans are going to be go for naught later in the movie when things are going to go a little different this time around. But for now, he actually has hope. Maybe the sidekick will live this time. Right. And so Rex is, is gearing his sidekick for the shootout where he's going to meet, meet the, 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 the railway men and the cattle ranch man. So, you know, the, the typical Western villains and also the spaghetti Western villains, which happens. Yeah. And this is where, again, right before this, we get the scene where Rex finally explains how he views the universe. Uh, yes. Yeah. He talks about, yeah, well, you know, the night scene. Yeah. The night scene. Go for it. Yeah. And th- this is again, a thing where he's eating this mysterious root again, or they talk about the root thing. And then Peter's talking about Rex, like, how do you know all this sort of stuff? And Rex is like, I know. And what's, what's happening over there is that, you know, Peter is, is over by the one part of the fire sort of looking around and Rex has about, I want to bet like nine to 10 white hats of different varieties. And he's looking at a mirror and he's trying on each white hat and seeing what it looks like in them. So it's just like, as the scene's going, Rex is trying on white hat, white hats and Rex sort of explains, and he says, look, my life is, is that I'm a drifter, and I walk into town, and I help out the good people who are poor for some reason, and they, I help them out against the bad guys who are all rich for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I just ride in, I help the good guys, I leave every time. That's my life over and over again, and it's kind of sad when you think about that, how little enthusiasm Rex has for the world. He just knows this is his life. It repeats like I said earlier, it's a Mobius strip over and over and over, and and that's why he just does not get excited about this. He's like, tomorrow they're all going to show up with guns, we're going to have a shootout, I'll shoot all of them in the hand, I'll knock the guns out. And he's like, and that'll be it, and that's that's how it goes. So here we go to the next day, the big shootout. Right, and so th- this sort of perpetuates that whole fact that like Rex is aware, because if you think of Rex O'Herlihan as a a movie character, sort of like a James Bond where he's been in all these movies, but like... He doesn't know their movies, but I would imagine that a lot of these old, old Westerns, they all follow the same sort of script, just as we talked about. Guy walks into town, solves the problems, you know, helps the good people, gets rid of the bad people. And so Rex is talking about basically his movie career and all the movies that he's done, but he doesn't talk about himself as a movie star or the fact that he's making movies. It's just think of it real life as in I go to this one town, I help the poor good guys against the rich bad guys, and then I leave. And then I go to another town, and then I help the poor good guys against the rich bad guys. So it's just this cycle that repeats because that's what it is. And he sort of has figured this out by now that this is how it's going to go. Okay, so we flash forward the next day, and I'll skip to the scene because the, the more important stuff is after the scene. But uh, So the railroad men and the colonel's men have met. They're all up on a ridge, and, and there's like 20, I think, of them. And Rex and Peter show up, and this is supposed to be the big showdown that always happens in these movies. And Rex, on the, on the fly shows up there and he makes in a call. He sees the defense lining up at the line of scrimmage. He doesn't like what they're doing. He calls an audible. He's like, I can't fight all these guys. I only have two guns. I have 12 bullets. I can't shoot 20 guns out of their hand. Yeah, I was expecting 40% of them to, to, to chicken out. Yeah. But apparently their, their, their attendance is very good today. <laughs> yeah, they, they had good attendance in this time. So rather than shoot the guns out of their hand, Rex brainstorms and he comes up with this little plot where he's going to – he puts on like a dressage show where he, he has his horse trot around and do all these dressage, fancy moves. Dressage, Mario, dressage. That's no, bocce or bocce, right? 
Right. <laughs> yeah, dressage. Sorry. He puts on a dressage show, and uh, and all the all the bad guys are so impressed they forget to shoot him, and then Rex just rides off instead. So, and and then we get we get we get another henchman thing where you know Rex rides off into the sunset after his little distraction, and then Andy Griffith looks at his men and says, "We'll go after him," and they say, "Well, we can't. We're up here on the ridge." <laughs> and then he looks at him and they say, "You. It was your idea to put us up here." And then he, Andy Griffith just like shrugs. I love that shrug where he just goes, "Yeah, I did." <laughs> yeah, it's actually the more you watch this movie, you catch the uh, the henchmen being much smarter than Andy Griffith. Is they're always forever mocking him or pointing out his mistakes. And there's even a scene later where he says, "I came up with an idea," and they just start laughing, which is I have always yeah. loved that scene. They just start chuckling, like, "Yeah, right, good one." No one was making fun of Andy Griffith. I can't emphasize that enough. Okay, so. So uh, the bad guys again. They they're trying to kill Rex. They just cannot do it. They start. They put a bomb in his campsite. They do all of these things, but it just doesn't work because again, this is every movie Rex has ever been in. He knows their step, their moves two steps before they do. So he's always avoiding wherever they're going to be. And the bad guys are just flustered and they cannot figure out how to kill him. And this is the point in the movie where it really takes a turn for. My God, this is a clever idea, and I think this scene alone would be enough for probably I would uh, probably speak for you too, just to to recommend this movie to people just for this scene alone, the Bob Barber scene. Yes, and and I'm going to preface it by saying that something that I don't necessarily like, I like where they go ultimately. I don't necessarily like how they get there because I like the fact that only Rex knows that he's in this endless cycle. Uh, and not just an endless cycle, but he's in the movie. But the bad guys realize it on some level because they're talking about how they, they try to get Rex and nothing they've done has worked. And then the the leader of the railroad group, the Spaghetti Western, look at Andy Griffin and say, even if we did, we can't win. We're the bad guys. Bad guys don't win. And so they, they're sort of into the whole fact that they're – they're aware of the tropes too. And I don't necessarily like that in the sense that it, it makes sense with the world, but I sort of like the fact that if Rex was the only one that sort of knew what was going on, but um, they come to the point that bad guys can't beat good guys. And then Andy Griffith has a great idea and he says, well, then that's it. I've got an idea. And what's the idea? I don't know. Rex is with uh, Peter the next day. And, you know, Peter's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to make a song? Do you want to iron shirts? Like, what do you want to do? And Rex looks down and he sees through his binoculars or his spyglass someone coming in a brightly done outfit with a stagecoach dragging behind him as if maybe there's a wardrobe. And nothing is said at this point, but Rex is like, I don't know what's going on. And he even admits it to Peter, like, I don't know about this because Peter's like, when's the next fight or shootout? And, you know, Rex is basically like, they're going to – well, what Rex tells Peter, he says is, they're gonna they're gonna hire some hired gun and I'm gonna defeat him. When's that gonna happen? Tomorrow. But he looks down there and he sees this person. He's like, "What's going on?" So he goes into town to to face this hired gun. And who does he find? He finds Bob Barber, who is another good cowboy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's let's t- stop and talk about that for a second. This is the conceit or the concept behind this movie. Why it's so brilliant is that again, Rex knows. The bad guys always hire a hired gun. This is just how every Western movie ends. They'll bring in this villain, this butcher. They'll have a big showdown. It will be the end of the movie. But the bad guys have thought outside the box in this one. They're like, you know, we're bad. We can't beat a good guy. Let's hire a good guy. And so all of a sudden, here comes the hired gun, and it's a good guy. 
And what's even funnier, I'm not sure that people would know this, but it's played by the actor playing him is Patrick Wayne, who is literally the son of John Wayne. That's John Wayne's kid, the ultimate good guy cowboy, his kid playing the ultimate good guy. And so here we have this scenario that Rex has never prepared for two good guys in a showdown. And he's like, how the hell is this going to work? Like good guys can't beat good guys. It's never been done before. So that's where this movie really goes into this weird dimension of just clever at this point. Yes. And, and it's such a good idea. And then you have this, this shoot showdown between Rex and Bob Barber where they're feeling each other out. And they're basically like sort of, they're having a pissing contest, but it's 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 really just about how good are you? Wait, did you catch when when Rex walks into the bar, what's on the table in front of Bob? Yep. Yeah, Bob has been drinking milk. He's been drinking milk. <laughs> you see Bob Barber, he and, and you see him in other scenes when he's talking with the cattle with the with the cattle barons and 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 Andy Griffith, where he's literally holding a glass of milk in his hand. So he's been drinking milk. Yeah, like Jay said, they get in this little pissing match over who's better, and they're like literally arguing semantics. Like, well, you know, I love, that's a nice shirt, and Rex says, well, you know, I try to I try to look nice. I try to have a different outfit every day. I don't want to be predictable. And Bob's like, yeah, because you don't want to be boring. And so they they're on the same mindset. They both get how the life of a good guy works. And there's a great line here where uh, <laughs> Rex says, uh, "What do you think's gonna happen? Like, we can't kill each other, and we like." we shoot each other in the hand. There's no way either of us can win. What do you think is going to happen? And, and Bob says, well, I reckon the most good, good guy will win. Yep. And so this is where, like Jay said, now we start listing the qualifications over who the gooder good guy is. And what Bob does is he sort of runs down some of the things that Rex has been doing in the movie that we saw. Like, you know, obviously Bob Barber has been drinking milk and he looks at Rex and he says, didn't you, did you order warm gin at this thing? And Rex is like, well, yeah, I ordered it, but I didn't drink it. You know, like I just did it. And Bob's just like, Oh, Rex, you know? And then he's just like, you had two women uh, that you're not married to at your camp at night. And Rex was like, well, but you know, and, and Bob's like true or false. And Rex is like, well, true, you know? And he's like, and one of them is, you know, uh, the, the, the Colonel's daughter who's, you know, uh, just over legal and then you've got the the town prostitute who's the prostitute and you know rex is like well yeah but i didn't do anything with it and he's like but you had them at your camp and so bob is basically making the argument that he is the better good guy than rex is yeah it's and rex's argument is well you got hired by the colonel like there's no way that you're better than me you're working for evil and bob as we learn later, used to be a lawyer. <laughs> Bob starts badgering. Is this not true? Did you do this? Did you not do this? And Rex is like, what are you, a lawyer? And Bob's like, yeah, I used to be. I used to be, <laughs> which is an important line. And then, you know, Rex, he doesn't swear, but he says like duty or some sort of, you know. Damn, he says damn. Oh, damn. That's it. And then, you know, Bob scolds him on that. And then he, he says poo-poo duty and stuff like that. And they look over because they're in the saloon and they're arguing and they look like underneath the swinging doors of the saloon. And there's some kids who are tittering at the, uh, at the, at the potty mouth thing. And then, you know, Bob just says, Whoa, Hey there, buckaroos. So like Bob Barber, of course, he's good with kids. He's drinking milk. He's, you know, again, it's, it's just this funny little scene where they're the good guys. And as you said, Mario, they, they talk about how they don't know what's going to happen because at, at best, what's going to happen is they're going to get into a, a draw and they're going to shoot each other in the hand. Yeah. <laughs> Although, here is the, the clincher on this scene. Again, Rex accidentally swears in front of these little kids. He says, damn, doo-doo, pee-pee, and 
TT, I think. I don't know. TT, yeah. Not especially yeah. bad words, but in front of kids, which is a mortal sin for a good guy cowboy. And this is where Bob brings up the coup de gras here, where he says, also, Rex, you're 31 years old and you don't even date. And Rex is like stunned. What? Rex is not aware that this is part of the good guy credo, the rule book that you must date and like we have a girlfriend and stuff. And Bob says, no, Rex, you didn't know that. You must be a confident heterosexual. That is in the cowboy playbook. If you're not a confident heterosexual, you can't be a good guy. And this rattles Rex. Like I said earlier, he is not good with women. We've seen him. He's a virgin. He is such a good guy. He's never been with a girl in his life. And this is where we get in the trope of, you know, masculinity and straight and cowboys, where Bob even says, it's not enough to be heterosexual. You have to be a confident heterosexual. And this is where Rex loses all his confidence whatsoever. So Rex basically then, they're getting into the, they're about to do the duel. And, you know, after this, this thing and Rex basically says, well, I'm going to postpone it. We can come back tomorrow or something like that. So he leaves and then he's talking to Peter about it. You know, he's flustered and he basically, you know, Peter's just like, well, can't you? And he says, it's all about confidence and I don't have it right now. Yeah. Did you catch all the villagers when when Rex is he backs yeah. away from a fight with Bob Barber? All the villagers out there are hurling insults at him because he's a coward and he's leaving. And my favorite one is one of them calls him free thinker. Yeah, free thinker. That's so good. <laughs> oh, this movie is like, and again, like I said, there's there's huge stretches of this movie that like, you know, sort of plod and drag, and and the plot is very loose. But like all of these sort of jokes that you're stringing together, just just these random insults, like it's just so well done. Like it's just so clever. Yeah. So, yeah, Rex is ready to move up, pack up, and leave. He's backed out of a showdown for the first time. He's not as good as Bob Barber. He knows this. Bob has laid out the rules that, you know, Rex has had a minor, a barely legal adult out to his campsite in her underwear. That's not what a good guy does. So he's ready to pack it up and leave town. And this is where he explains to Peter, I can't be a good guy anymore. I'm just not a good guy. He's like, I have to go get a new wardrobe. Like, lots of understated stuff, browns and grays. <laughs> so... Yes, and we find out this is where he, he actually admits to Peter, I'm a virgin. You know, I this is 1884. I travel from town to town. I've never been with a girl. How could I be a confident heterosexual? I just, I don't do that. So again, this is the crux of the movie. If Rex can still be a good guy and a virgin at the same time. Which is ridiculous. But at the same time, you know, it's what we're going with. Yeah, so... Okay, well, we'll wrap this movie up here that the, the colonel's back with Bob Barber and they're laughing that Rex has fled in shame and the colonel's like, now we have to go follow him and crush him and destroy him. And Bob, of course, ever the good guy, Bob Barber says, I, I can't do that. It just wouldn't be nice. And Andy Griffith's like, oh, of course not. And he holds up a plate of cookies. He's like, cookie? Because <laughs> yep. Bob's drinking the milk. And so what they do is they, the colonels were, are going to do something to draw Rex back to town to have a final showdown with the good guy against the good guy. And what they do is they go and they kill Peter. They go and murder the sidekick, which, spoiler, he's not really dead. Rex knew it was coming, so Rex had him wear a bulletproof vest. But that is the impetus that sets up the showdown of Rex being drawn back into town to fight Bob for showdown number two, the good guy against the good guy. So Rex, of course, rounds up all the sheep herders, and they don't necessarily want to go with him, but he goes. So he's got his posse, and he's running back into town. And you get that stereotypical, and I love it, there's the kid on the edge of town, like a small child. And you see, you see him, and he sees Rex coming in the distance, and you see him kind of do the backward sort of stumble. And then he runs into town. He says, he's coming, he's coming. And they all look at the kid, and he says, he's coming. And he's standing in the saddle. <laughs> 
Now, you may not know of this. I just read about this the other day, and even I did not know about this. That is a reference to a cut scene that was originally in this movie in the theater, and they cut it out on video, so it's not there anymore. Ah. Yeah, there was originally a scene here where Rex goes to Miss Tracy, and they have sex. Where Rex does lose his virginity, and him standing in the saddle is the sign that he has lost his virginity, and he is a confident heterosexual. So... They cut that scene out, and the standing in the saddle joke is still there. And I didn't know this until recently. I just thought it was, you know, just, again, Rex showing off and whatnot, which, again, Bob then says. Because, like, they're like, he's standing in the saddle, and they all look rattled, and Bob's just like, but it doesn't mean anything. He's, he's just showing off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I guess makes more sense if, if that's the whole thing is that he's confident now. But basically, Rex comes back into town. They're trying to ambush him, but that's when Peter shows up and foils the ambush, and he's just like, just like you said, Rex, and we get people tumbling out of windows and into the troughs and things like that, and then they sort of, again, this is a showdown between Rex and Bob. <laughs> yeah, there's a great, again, so many little tropes of movies they just make fun of, and there's one here where Rex is lined up against Bob, and, and of course the showdown has to be in the town square. We're going, you know, the quick and the dead here. Every gunfight has to be in the middle of town, where Rex is lined up, and he's got the entire line of the sheep herders behind him, and across from him is Bob Barber, and Bob's got the entire line of all the henchmen behind him, and it's one of these things before Rex and Bob can square off, someone fires a gun, and all of a sudden there's this big shootout, and in the ensuing shootout, every single person in the town is killed, except for Rex and Bob and the colonels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, they're everybody, all dead. everybody else gets hit but the main characters. You know, and then, you know, and I think even the bad guys say something like, Oh God, we we've lost everyone or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And you know, it's it's just it's just incredible. So then, you know, you have this shootout between Rex and Bob where they're trying to figure out who's the better man. So they like they both shoot one of their guns out of each other's hands, and then we get to the next one where Bob then draws first and shoots Rex in the shoulder. That bastard! And then Rex looks at him and says, you aren't a good guy. Because, you know, he shot him in the shoulder and he drew first, and Bob's response is, I was a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Again, my dad was a lawyer, and I grew up in an era in Washington. I didn't know anybody else whose dad was a lawyer. Everyone else was like blue collar. I had no idea that lawyer was a bad thing. So this was the first time I'd ever heard that lawyers were not considered maybe an honorable profession. So it was kind of a uh, seminal moment in my childhood realizing my dad might be a shyster. <laughs> that is literally the punchline that Bob shoots Rex in the collarbone. Rex is like, you're not good. And Bob's like, I was a lawyer. Of course I'm not good. So then Rex shoots him dead. And, and on that note, I remember one time where like, you know, I learned some lawyer jokes or whatever when I was a young kid. And then I was over at my one of my friends house and I, I, he was kind of like a new friend to me. And they were like, you know, very well off and stuff like that. And then, you know, I think we were all at dinner and the dad asked if I knew any jokes. So I started telling lawyer jokes. <laughs> Guess what the dad did for a living? <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a Jay Fisher's introduction to awkward comedy right there. Oh, boy, that was something else. But hey, you know. <laughs> He was a good sport, maybe. So who knows? Um, but yes, so Rex shoots Bob dead because, you know, Bob is not a good guy. And Rex is ultimately the goodest good guy. And he wins. And so, you know, Bob is dead. Rex has vanquished him. And, you know, uh, the cattle baron is bested. And so how does Andy Griffith, uh, uh, su uh, you know, submit to Rex O'Hurlihan? He says sorry. He apologizes. I, I can't help but feel a little responsible for all the carnage in this town, Rex. <laughs> I don't have much, but 
would a would a would a would a sincere I'm sorry be good? And Rex is like, it's a start. <laughs> well, uh, okay, we glossed over there that Rex literally shoots Bob in the head and kills him. So yep. that's the thing with Rex. Rex can only be pushed so far. The fact that a good guy would pretend to be a good guy is so infuriating that the, for the first time in his life, Rex has killed somebody. So he shot him in the head, missed his hand. And that's the thing. I always wonder if they'd ever done a sequel or followed this movie to the next conclusion, what, how Rex's life has changed because now he's tasted blood. He didn't shoot him in the hand. So again, they never did a sequel to this movie. And again, it was a bomb. So why would they? But it would always be curious to see how Rex's life would have changed after this scenario that was so much different than any scenario he'd ever been in before. There's so much potential with this movie. You know, I I think that, you know, I, I, after you you and I were talking about this and how the critics panned it, I actually read some of the critics' reviews on this, mm-hmm. and I laughed at the whole, it's not Blazing Saddles. And someone brought up a point that I think is a pretty salient point in the sense that, okay, it's this madcap screwball kind of comedy where, you know, it's this – it's it's like Police Academy in, in a way. But, you know, Police Academy had, you know, like huge hijinks like all the way through and like these, you know, very – Action sequences, I guess, isn't the right moment, but they have, you know, a lot of nonstop sequences, whereas this movie doesn't really have that. It's very talky and thinky and sort of slow at times. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're building up to a shootout and stuff like that. But, you know, there's there's a lot of periods in this movie where not a ton of stuff is happening. They're just sort of showing jokes of the tropes of cowboy movies where, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to get old or whatever because I enjoy them. But I can understand that, you know, that critics sort of – you know, complaint with the movie. But that being said, it, the ideas and just the possibilities that's in this movie are just endless. And I, I do, I was, I was thinking, I told you this would be really cool if you rebooted this, but you didn't reboot it as a movie. You made it like a series Mm -hmm. or something like that. And so like, you know, in the, in the 10 to 13 episodes in the, in the, in the series, you have Rex enter a town and obviously he's very familiar with everything. So he meets, you know, the new, prostitute with the heart of gold and the new colonel bad guy and you know his person who's going to be his new sidekick and all these sorts of things and some sort of problem emerges that rex is sort of knows about but kind of doesn't knows about know about and then he solves the problem he saves the day and then he leaves and then the next season he could be in a new town and you know you can have new characters and he can you know he can be somewhat familiar but then he something new comes up so like ultimately rex is evolving within this trope of like the same town, the same people, the same situation sort of thing. And I I think that would be so interesting. And you're right, Mario, the fact that Rex has now killed a man, like shot him in the head, like, does that make it any different? Maybe kind of, we, we do sort of touch on it here at the end because as Rex has, has been killed and, and Andy Griffith says, he's sorry. He then says to the town party at my place, (laughs) but it's BYOB, but, but party at my place. So the whole town gets to go have a party at the cattle ranchers, uh, the, at the colonel's thing, and everybody who was dead is seemingly there. They're back. Everybody's back. They're back. Everyone's back. They're there. And, like, even the, the, the colonel or the baron of the railroad comes there and he says, I'm gone for two minutes and you throw a party without me? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting because Jay had shared that theory with me before we went on the air that this would probably work even better as a TV show or a series more than a movie. And I think he's absolutely right. I was thinking about that all day today. Although it does, 
it's it's one of these things where, where a certain type of comedy comes around and people just aren't ready for it yet. And yeah. maybe it should have been 10 years, 15 years later. You know, we had Scream and all those meta comedies that came out later in there that kind of make these these jokes and the same kind of observations. But when you mention the TV series, the first thing that comes to my mind is Police Squad. You familiar with that yep. one? Yeah. So for people who don't know, the movie The Naked Gun was originally a TV series, and it only lasted six episodes, five or six. And it was one of the most notorious bombs ever that people just were not ready for this airplane, punny, slapsticky humor in a TV series. And that format, it just was not what people were ready for. And so they, the show completely bombed, and they brought it back you know, four or five years later as The Naked Gun, and it was a huge hit. So that didn't work in tv it did work more in a movie maybe rustler's rhapsody would have been just the opposite maybe they could make this a really witty smart brilliant conceptual parody of a western tv series and i I could see that i would love to see something like that yeah and you know you could have the larger arc you know being not only is rex sort of evolving i guess because he's facing some sort of new wrinkle like the whole thing with this rustler's rhapsody is that Rex knows how this is going to go, but the fact that that he has to face a good guy cowboy is new, right? Mm -hmm. And so it somewhat changes him. And and so obviously you can't just have uh, every season be the same thing, the same thing. Like obviously Rex has to face some new problem and deal with it somehow, but you can do it in this background. And I think that ultimately this large arc, you know, if you do like six, seven seasons or however many seasons you do it, you can talk about how Rex, you know, is – is, is he becoming aware that he's a character in movies or something like that? You can sort of talk about the larger issue and you know, all that sort of stuff. Whereas it doesn't really discussed in this movie. Rex just knows these things and they ask why. And he's just like, I just know. Yeah. They really don't delve as far deep into the concept as they could. Although again, it's an 80 minute movie. I'm not sure how far you really could go right. into it. But again, I just so happy that a movie like this did exist in that point in my life or just that period of comedy in general that again, this movie, again, like you said, Jay has said at the start of the podcast, it might not hold up from start to finish as maybe the one of the greatest movies ever. And I'll be the first one to admit that. I don't think it's like the best comedy ever, but it's so much different and just on a different plane of thinking about comedy than movies yeah. of that era. So I'm so overjoyed that we've got a chance to talk about it and, and kind of i hope people go out and and track it down it's hard to find but it is out there you can find it on youtube and i i've owned a dvd of it for years so it's not really like hard for me to find it but but if you wanted to go out and look for it this is one i think is really worth your while especially if you just like the evolution of comedy and looking at jokes in different ways and to cap it all off just to finish this whole thing we have the party at the end which is the end of the movie, and obviously Rex is going to leave the party and ride off into the sunset. So he gets all the asks, uh, you know, Peter to get all the main characters so that he could say goodbye, and he says goodbye to, you know, the colonel, says goodbye to the colonel's daughter, says goodbye to Miss Tracy, and they have a big kiss, and then he goes to Peter, and you know, it's the whole "I'm going to miss you most of all, Scarecrow" kind of moment, and he turns to Peter and he says, "While they were patching me up in the medical ward, she visited me, and and." And we did more than just talk. That's right. So they cut out the earlier scene, but they put this one in there instead. So one way or another, Rex left town a happy man. Yes. So Rex Rex killed Bob Barber. So you know he's tasted blood, and he is he is he has known a woman now as he's left. So he, obviously he has changed a little bit. And so it's and again we get the last jab where like 
you know, we see the town, the the the, outs, the outskirts of the town thing, and it, it's perfectly day. And then you they they're waving goodbye to Rex, and Rex is like in a. It's obviously a different time of day. He's literally in a sunset. <laughs> of course. And he's just like, how perfect is that? And then they pan back to the people, and they're just again during just regular daytime, and they're waving. And then obviously, you know, Rex has told Peter like, you can't come with me. I ride alone. You know, it's even in my song. I ride alone. Like I can't take you with me and, and Peter's like I want to go with you and Rex is like no you can't and so obviously Rex rides off into the sunset and then Peter just says screw it I'm going with him and so you know Peter rides after him and stuff like that and I think Andy Griffith's just like I could I, I could see that coming or something like that and then Celia Ward the colonel's daughter's just like yes dad we all could uh, just one last jab it's like of course the sidekick's gonna go after him yeah although it ends with like a really good country ballad at the end like i'm always surprised when i get to the song there's this song here at the end of the movie the last of the silver screen cowboys and like i'm not really a country music fan but that's like, like kind of a hauntingly good song like i'm it's a good song kind of shocked it's here in this movie it's good and it, again you just were talking about it go see this movie this is not some sort of again this is not you know uh some sort of cinematic masterpiece but it is so well crafted and it's it's so ahead of its time and yet I love that. And I think that, you know, I've been in a lot of plays and I've read a lot of scripts. And I think when people say write what you know, a lot of what people know, especially if they're playwrights, is they know plays, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why you have a lot of plays like Noises Off and sort of that genre where it's it's a play about people doing a play. And yeah, that that can kind of get old after a while. But I think that that sort of meta sort of humor, it's something that was written about and, and on stage a lot. But it wasn't translated to movies, but after a while, people who become familiar with movies were like, hey, let's let's write about sort of what goes on in movies. And I, I think that, you know, it's something that we've touched on more and more as as the years have gone on. But Russell's Rhapsody is one of the first movies, I think, that really sort of plays with this idea, especially in the Western genre, where it's like, yeah, this is a Western. These things happen and these are how the characters sort of deal with it. And it's so, as you said, it's so ahead of its time and it's commonplace now. But, you know, you can see the genesis of, you know, a great mind sort of thinking through these sorts of things. And, yes, the plot doesn't super work. And, yes, there's some weird fringe jokes that don't necessarily land. But just the sequences of what they're doing and how they approach this sort of thing, it's all just really, really interesting. It's a good time. It's not a long movie and it's, it's a really super good time. Like I'm never bored watching this. You know, I've always wanted to track down Tom Berenger and I've always wanted to ask him what he thinks about this movie because it's such an outlier on his resume. He's very serious, dramatic, just well-respected dramatic actor I always wondered what he thinks about having this one on his resume right at the start of his career. Yeah, I wonder too. But I, he's good in it. He's great in it. That's the thing. That's like I said. I see him in Gettysburg. I see him in Major League. I see him in all the other stuff. And I'm like, that's Rex O'Herlihan. Look, he was in other stuff too. How exciting. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's, we've, we've raved about this movie. You can hear the level of uh, respect and prestige it has in our eyes. And we're just hoping that there's a couple people out there that'll go and seek it out. Again, it's... It's never. It was never going to be a big hit, but it's one that just really lodges in your memory, and it, it kind of sticks with you, especially if you have any semblance or appreciation for comedy. Because just because all I can keep saying is it's different. It's different than anything else that was around it. I just was looking at Tom Berenger's uh, filmography, and yeah, Rustler's Rhapsody it was '85. Literally the next year, his next movie was Platoon. <laughs> yeah. 
where he's nominated for best supporting actor like it's literally like you know a, a masterpiece of a movie and it's like he's got rustler's rhapsody just before then i wonder if there's a scene in platoon where like the Viet Cong surround him in a circle and he has to warn them that they're going to shoot each other yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great all right anyway jay i just uh want to thank you for stopping by anything else you want to say before we sign off here i don't really have anything to say uh, thanks for everyone for watching for listening please go out and look up this movie it's just again it, it, it it's almost criminal in a way that so few people know it. It, it it's something that should be known yeah, and even 80s junkies don't know it. That's what's astounding. Like, people that know movies should at least have heard of this one, but people have never even heard the title. That's how obscure this one is. It would it would rank up uh, right there with one of the movies I did a couple weeks ago, Fortress, just the most obscure movies I've done on uh, Staff Picks so far. I'm now thinking about, like, that going to Tom Berenger and asking about Russell's Rhapsody because I feel like I would understand if he was like, please forget about this movie. But at the same time, that would break my heart because I love this movie so much. Oh, that would hurt so bad if he disavowed this movie. Because I know like John Cusack hates Better Off Dead. He won't talk about it. If Tom Berenger pulled that move on Wrestler's Rhapsody, it would literally destroy me. I would be brokenhearted the entire rest of my life. But by the same token, you know, even though this is this isn't Platoon and this isn't, you know, other things like that, like Tom Berenger is... I mean, would you say that he's on screen in this movie, like, literally 95% of the time? Oh, yeah, he's got to carry... Not only does he have to carry the entire movie, he actually doesn't get most of the punchlines. He's the straight man, so he has to react to everybody else and sell their jokes, really. He has to sell their jokes, and he is on screen all the time. And, you know, a lot of times... Like, I'm a character actor when I when I do plays and, and things like that. Like, I'm usually very rarely the lead. Um, I could, and I've and I have done... But uh, my training and my my background, because I you know I was trained in comedy and and things like that, and 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 a lot of techniques and and accents and things like that. So usually I, I'm I'm more of the 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 character sort of actors. So I don't have all the stage time and all the lines and things like that, and that's fine with me. But every once in a while, it's fun to like do a thing where like it's literally you and you are like you have most of the the action, you're most of the lines, you're very rarely off stage. You know, you've got all these things to do. And so, yeah, maybe 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 Tom Berenger doesn't think that Wrestler's Rhapsody is like the greatest thing on his resume. But my God, he is the entire movie. Yeah. And again, I on the zero percent chance Tom Berenger is listening to this. So we just want to thank you for bringing this bit of joy into our lives. Again, it was almost 100 percent you. So thank you, sir. <laughs> and I think it's something to be said. Like I said, I found this movie because I became a fan of Tom Berenger and liked his work and obviously I came across this movie title and then watched it. So and I love it. So, you know, the fact that I found it because of Tom Berenger and went, hey, Tom Berenger is good in this movie. And he is. He's good. Like you said, he's the straight man, so he has to kind of sell things, but he does it so well. Yeah. Well, see, I was the same way with Andy Griffith because I saw this movie first, and I'm like, this guy's a great evil gay cattle baron. I'm going to go back and watch his entire catalog of evil gay roles, and it turns out he was not like that in other things. I was very disappointed. Right. It, it was just this. <laughs> no one was making fun of Andy Griffith. I can't emphasize that enough. Andy Griffith's good, but, like, you know, Mary Lou Henner, like, they all do their parts nicely, but they're all just, they just do the thing. But, like, Tom Berenger is special in this movie. Like, he does a really nice job with it. Yeah, he's like the uh, the pitcher on a bad team who wins 28 games. He's like the MVP of this kind of weak movie, but he's so, he's so ingrained in every little aspect of it that he just stands out. He's like, he is the MVP here. 
Right. You know, like Andy Griffith is is just, you know, iconic as he is. But Andy Griffith is not doing anything new. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, he's, this, you know, gay cattle baron or whatever. And, and as you said, he's he's not really that character before. But he's literally just like, it, it, again, it's kind of like when Jeff Goldblum is in a film and, you know, somebody is literally the director's just looking at him and going, just just be Jeff Goldblum. And he just is kind of himself. <laughs> Like that's the direction here. Like Andy Griffith is is a fun character, and and I will never speak ill of of Andy Griffith. I can't emphasize that enough. But they're literally just like, just be yourself, okay? And he's just being him as this character with with extra wrinkles. But like, and Mary Lou Henner's fine, and Cilla Ward's fine. You know, it, like everyone's doing an okay enough job. But like Tom Berger does extra good duty here and he has to because he's in the movie like he's never not in the movie yeah okay well again jay i just want to uh thank you for stopping by again jay and i go way back he's one of my oldest friends on the internet we don't get to podcast nearly enough anymore but he he and i go way back way back and he's kind of elusive these days getting on the air so i'm so excited we uh pulled you out of your groundhog day hole and you popped your head up here again jay thank you yeah I dusted off my cobwebs on on the uh, on the microphone for this, and it was a great time. Thanks for having me. Gee whiz. Gee whiz. Okay, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you have to uh, reach me, you can reach me on email, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more underrated or underloved movies, and I will try to find somebody interesting to come on the air and talk about them. Talk to you guys later. What in the hell are you? Just a stranger passing through. Where in the hell do you get that shirt? How a person dresses is nobody's business but his or her own.